Welcome to another episode of Investing Compass. Before we begin, a quick note that the information contained in this podcast is general in nature. It does not take into consideration your personal situation, circumstances, or needs. All right. So, Shani, we still have our competition going. Mm Mm-hmm. So as a reminder, what we're looking for is, of course, a comment and a rating in your podcast app. Mm -hmm. And we are giving away hats. They're very fashionable, as we mentioned. Yes. You you talked about how you wear them on your morning walk. I do, And I assume what you wear on your morning walk is just the height of fashion. It is, yeah. Okay. Well, anyway, (laughs) so we're giving away this hat. So what you can do is you can leave us a comment and a rating And then just take a screenshot of that, and you can either email it to me, my email address is in the show notes, or you can send it via Instagram, and if you're following us on Instagram, you get an extra prize. That sounds like a pretty good deal. It does sound like a good deal. Mm -hmm. So anyway, that's our competition. All right. Okay, so let's get into this episode, and we want to start the new year out with some resources to help investors get their foundations right. That's right, Mark. So to invest sustainably and consistently, you need surplus cash flow. The size and consistency of your cash flow can ultimately influence what investment product and methods may suit your circumstances. Yeah. And so how do you determine your surplus cash flow, Shani? Well, Mark, you do that through a budget. So today we're going to explore different types of budgets to get you starting 2023 on the right foot. Yeah, and not only do budgets give you insights into what products may suit your circumstances, they also allow you to refine your spending and understand where your funds are going. This can often mean that you can lift your savings and investment rates by identifying unnecessary spending. I think it's also worth mentioning that there's an attitude where budgeting is often promoted for women as a way to financial freedom in the same way that investing is promoted to men. And we can see this play out in the saving and investing rates of men and women. So in a study conducted by Fidelity, They found two revealing differences in the savings and investing habits of men and women. The first is that women save more than men. Women saved an annual average of 9% of their paycheck compared to an average of 8.6% for men. So not only did women save more, but women also made better investors. So women outperform men by 0.4% a year, and that does build up. So that seemingly small difference in savings rate and investment returns can, of course, make a big difference over the long term. But there is some bad news. Women still lack confidence as investors. So Fidelity asked the study participants who they believed was a better investor over the past year, and only 9% of women thought they had outperformed men. And this study was from 2017. This lack of confidence does have consequences. According to a study by Walt Simple, women invest 40% less money than men, And when asked in a survey by Lexington Law what they would do with an extra $1,000, men were 35% more likely to invest money. Yeah. And I would like to point out that I think you are better than me at everything. (laughs) So if they were asking me if I was a better investor than you, I would pick you. And I would also say that for pretty much everything else. Well, that's very nice, Mark. Yeah. I disagree. Okay. Maybe this is just my inherent lack of confidence. (laughs) Okay. But let's get back to budgeting. But budgeting is... Regardless of gender, it's really what's necessary as a foundation in order to ensure that you have a successful investing outcome because it means you can actually invest something. 
Yeah. And when we look at younger investors, there's often two responses that we do get about budgeting. The first is that they're nervous about reviewing their budget and they want to avoid it at all costs. The second is that they don't have anything to save for. About a quarter of people feel financial stress and about half of these people say that one of the causes of financial stress is looking at their bank account. And this is especially pertinent now as 64% of Australians are nervous about rising costs of living. And the second response is that they don't have anything to save for, which isn't quite as bad as not having anything to live for, but still. I got dark very quickly, Mark. No, I was saying this is positive. Okay. (laughs) I'm not saying I don't have anything to live for. I'm saying that I was just comparing it to the savings thing. You just got there very quickly. I know. I know. It's not a far far trip, you know? (laughs) Um, But what we're doing, of course, when we save is we are just saving for something in the future. It's a financial goal. And of course, that's going to be different from person to person. So for some people, maybe you don't have the goal of saving for a house or property and you're comfortable with your lifestyle. And maybe then you're just comfortably saving for retirement. But what we do want to say for all investors and for all people who don't think they have something to save for is that saving money is never just for the sake of saving money. It gives you control over your life. And by control, Mark, of course, means control of your outcomes. Having money set aside, even if it's not assigned for a goal, means that you're able to decide if you want to leave a job that makes you unhappy. Johnny was looking at me while she said that, (laughs) by the way. But it also means that you're able to travel. You're able to have the financial freedom to take time off unpaid. Gives you control of your outcomes, which studies have shown even if the money doesn't get used, gives people a sense of freedom and happiness. And if we haven't sold you on budgets enough, going through the process of understanding your spending habits can also help with a crucial part of the portfolio construction process, and specifically calculating your required rate of return. Understanding what you spend your money on means that you're able to work out your personal inflation rate, and this can be an input into your required rate of return to really drill down into your goals. Yeah, exactly. And we've used this example before. So Shani and I have both chosen to live closer to work and live closer to the CBD. And that means that we're spending a larger percentage of our salary on housing and in our cases on rent. And because we live close to everything we want to do, we spend next to nothing on transport. So this obviously differs from the national average and the basket of goods that's used to determine CPI. So we can personalize this rate by adjusting the ratios. And if we haven't built enough of a case yet, let's go through a quick example. And before we start this, just a disclaimer that I know this is the advice given to a lot of millennials and there is absolutely no reason why you should take it. We try to be honest and transparent on Investing Compass. Uh, So I want to use an actual example from one of my budget reviews last year, and it just so happens to be a controversial one. So Mark, I'm a coffee drinker. That sounds like quite a confession. Um, (laughs) Yes, you are. And it is hard to find a time of the day where you do not have a coffee next to you. Exactly. So I do drink a lot of coffee and I'm one of those people that have a pretty ridiculous coffee order. And I'm very lucky because sometimes Mark brings me a coffee in the morning if he's in a good mood. So Mark, what is my coffee order? Well, it, it depends. So it depends on your mood. It does, but it's also weather dependent. Yes. As well as mood dependent. And sometimes those two, the, those two things are tied together. They are, yeah. But basically, you have two coffees. I do. So you have the strong iced long black and the strong oat flat white, which is a new one because it used to not be oat milk. It used to be soy, but people kept cooking it. Yes. Well, like it was just not, yeah. Well, anyway, it's a new thing for you. This it year. was unreliable. Oat seems to be a bit more reliable. 
I am I am not the oat milk <laughs> okay. of coffee ingredients. Then. Yeah, but the constant is that it does have to be strong. Yes, yes, yeah. it does. <laughs> um, and so, unfortunately, Sydney CBD isn't the cheapest place to get a coffee, um, and Brangaroo is even worse. So I normally pay about $6 for a coffee and some days I'll have one coffee, some days I'll back it up with another coffee in the afternoon. So let's be conservative and say that I have one and a half coffees a day. Okay. So that's $9 a day. You multiply that by 365 days because as we said, you have a coffee next to you all the time. <laughs> so that is actually $3,285 a year, which I'm thinking now my budget has increased because now I pay for all your coffees. Your budget savings are just transferring that cost to me. Yeah, you haven't bought me a coffee for a while, Mark. It's upsetting. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, but I do have a coffee machine at home. Um, it's not realistic to say that I never buy coffee anymore, but I probably reduced it down to once a week. So let's call it $2,973. Okay, so if we take that, and we put it into our Morningstar Investor Portfolio Projector, Shani. That's exactly what I did. Yeah. So over <laughs> 20 years, if you invested that and you were getting a 5% return, you would have $100,000. And if we include inflation in that, that is $60,000 on an inflation-adjusted total. And obviously, this is all purely illustrative, but it shows the power of budgeting. I obviously haven't taken the cost of making coffee at home into account against this number, but the point is to understand what you're spending your money on because it can help review your habits, which is what I did. It could have just as easily been a subscription that I wasn't using that was just direct debiting, which is really common. It could have been reviewing your budget and seeing you're paying for something you're not using. We have a whole podcast on investing. You hopefully spend 20 minutes listening to us every week on top of other podcasts, webinars, research, portfolio maintenance. And me deciding to have a coffee at home makes a bigger difference than most decisions I would make regarding my portfolio. And obviously, this is just an example. We're not saying to cut back on coffee because that's a reason you can't buy a house. Everybody makes choices based on their lifestyle, and that's completely fine. Yeah, and I'm not real big in reviewing spending, but I think the other thing, right, as you said, like it lets you make deliberate decisions. And so many people talk about all the things that are important to them. And then you can obviously see that they're not spending money on it. And like travel's a big one, right, Shani? Like mm -hmm. everyone sits there and says travel's important. And then they spend like 80% of their budget on their house. But anyway. That's, that's just me, but I think we've hopefully built enough of a case for listeners to keep listening to this episode. So we want to start this by saying that like everything else in investing, budgets are not one size fits all. There's no ideal template for investors to follow, and it's dependent on so many factors that are individual to you. But the process of creating and maintaining a budget starts with mapping out your current situation, your cash flow statement, basically. So what's coming in and what's going out. And we'll put a couple of resources on our resources page to help with this. I think that the Money Spot spreadsheet is pretty comprehensive and helps you uh, get a good basis for this. It's important to remember, though, that for basically all of us, no month is uniform in terms of spending. You may have rego due in one particular month. You might spend a bit more money in December around the holidays. You might have school fees or car servicing. And these are costs that occur on at least an annual basis. But if you're doing a budget based on each pay cycle, you may miss these costs. So make sure that you zoom out a little to understand all of your costs and when they come in. And an easy way to do this, and I know this is a little daunting for some people, but it's just to go back and look at the last 12 months on your bank statements. So some banks are pretty smart these days and they categorize spend for you. But this still might be a time-consuming process, 
but it will give you that understanding of your spending. And this is where you have two choices. If there is no structure to your spending and saving and you have room to cut back, you can simply do that and be mindful of your spending and saving. It's that simple. We're not trying to overcomplicate things. But most people are just not built that way. They need more structure and they need to compartmentalize each need and want and have it accounted for. So that is where there's different types of budgets. And there's more types of budgets than we know what to do with. So we're going to go through three main types of budgets and how they're set up. Okay. So we're going to start with the 50-30-20 rule. So the 50-30-20 rule basically gives you guidelines on how much to allocate to three broad categories. So that's 50% to necessities. So this would be your rent or mortgage, groceries, fuel, me getting coffee for Shawnee. (laughs) And then 30% to discretionary items, your wants, so entertainment, eating out, drinking. And I don't know, that's what I spend my money on, Shawnee, at least. Yeah, I guess other people have hobbies outside of us, Mark. Yeah, perhaps. But anyway... That last 20% is to save. And this seems like a very rigid budget where they where these numbers are arbitrary. And guess what? They are. They don't take into consideration the cost of living in Australia. It doesn't take into consideration that most people have to spend a lot more of their wage to fill up that necessity bucket. That's right, Mark. There was a study done that showed that 32% of a Sydney sider's gross income was spent on rent. Not sure why gross income was used in this study, but you can see that post-tax, that's a much larger percentage. Yeah, so that alone could blow out the budget, but that does not mean that you can't use this budget outline conceptually. This budget suits people that need rigidity and hard lines to be disciplined with their savings and spending. If that is the type of person you are, you're able to understand your baseline costs and create your own ratios from that as a goal. For example, you might decide that 60% for necessities, 30% for wants, and 10% for savings is more realistic. Exactly, Mark. In the same breath, this budget would not suit contractors or self-employed people with lumpy cash flows that aren't predictable. It's very hard to put away a set percentage of a pay packet when you have no idea when you'll be paid next or what you'll be paid next. Budgets are there to make you feel bad about yourself and set unrealistic expectations. They're there to set structure and help you achieve the most from your circumstances and add predictability through transparency. So those are the first two notable points. Budgets are there to work for you and they may not work for everyone. Morningstar Investor is built for investors by investors. It provides independent research and data on over 40,000 securities, tools to build and maintain an investment portfolio, and investor education resources to support you, regardless of where you are in your investing journey. Explore opportunities with our monthly global best ideas. Explore our ETF model portfolios. Plan better with two years of dividend forecasts for ASX-listed stocks. Stay informed with independent thought leadership. We've built tools to help you construct, monitor, and maintain your portfolio, including our Portfolio Manager. Integrated with one of Australia's leading portfolio tracking tools, ShareSight, Morningstar has been empowering investor success for over 35 years. We're passionate about your outcomes and are here every step of the way as you achieve them. Take out a free four-week trial to access our resources. Find the details in the episode notes. All right, so let's move on to the next one, and that's the reverse budget. The reverse budget has a laser focus on savings, and everything else is secondary. And to be on a reverse budget, you first determine how much you want to save per month, and then you can use the rest for expenses. If you have more leftover after expenses, then that can be used for discretionary spending. If you don't have anything leftover after expenses, tough luck. Yeah, and one of the good things about budgets is they are not set in stone forever. The reverse budget is pretty drastic. 
and it can be used when you have tight deadlines for a certain savings goal or when you're first setting up your emergency fund. Yeah, exactly, Mark. Personally, unless you've decided that you're serving savings rate is minimal. I feel like this isn't really a sustainable budget. But instead, like you said, it's just there when you need to raise cash in a hurry. And you mentioned emergency funds, and that's a great example. We spoke about emergency funds and their importance before, but basically it's there to ensure that you don't have to force sell out of your investments and is a crucial foundational piece of your finances. When you first get yourself into a position to invest and you're looking to set up an emergency fund, it may make more sense to say, if I save X amount, I'll be able to reach my emergency fund in four months. Those short stints of restrictive spending and forced savings can work really well. But that's not to say that this isn't a sustainable practice for you. Mark, I know you use this budget when you were younger. You would first save and basically have a transaction account with the rest that you would use for expenses and your discretionary spending. So did that work well for you? And is that what you still do today? Yeah, so maybe a couple points here, Shani. So the first is that my approach when I was young was to try and get every dollar I could into the market. And I did that because I had a deeply embedded or I had deeply embedded the notion of compounding and the power of long investing time horizons. And so I was able to just picture the fact that maybe skipping a dinner out when I was 22 meant a luxury trip when I was 55. And understanding the impact of compounding was really, really helpful. And I think we talked about that in one of our episodes, the one thing you can learn to be a good investor. So yes, I just saved what I wanted to and what I needed to, and then kind of just lived off of the rest. And I would work my transaction account down to zero after every paycheck, and then just be kind of holding on until that next paycheck came. But I think overall it worked. You know, I I am in a position now where I've got a pretty solid foundation, which means I get to save less. So I I certainly don't do that anymore. I still have money that comes out of my account right when my paycheck comes uh, comes in. But yeah, it's certainly not as restrictive as it used to be. So where did you go on your luxury trip when you were fifty five? Wow, that's very do nice. Do you shiny. remember? It must have been a while ago. <laughs> <laughs> yes, no, it's it is very it is very hard to remember. I do know where I went on a trip this weekend and how Virgin screwed me by <laughs> on both legs, but particularly on the way back where they just canceled. Well, they didn't cancel my flight. They rescheduled me a whole day later flying back through Melbourne instead of direct. And then I had to buy a flight on Qantas to get home last night. And I know I've been complaining about this yeah, all morning. Rough, mate. Very rough. Um, but let's go into another type of budget. The next type of budget is the 60-40 budget. And this one is structured a little differently because it offers flexibility based on your preferences. So this budget splits your income into two buckets. The first bucket is 60% and that's for all your expenses, your rent, bills, transport, any other commitments. But this also includes commitments that may not be a necessity according to other budgets. It's whatever you're committed to. So it might be your gym membership. It might be the squash lesson that you go to with your 80-year-old coach, Mark. Just expenses that you have committed to. You know, according to you, I'm the same age as my coach. So it is a fair matchup. Yeah. Well, I've got to play. I've got to go play with him tomorrow. My lesson last week was cut short because he fell asleep in his car (laughs) and showed up halfway through the lesson. I'm really hoping he doesn't listen to this, yeah. by the way. <laughs> but anyway, with this 60-40 budget, you take that other 40% and then you allocate that in 10% increments. So you might decide 10% is for fun, eating out, dining, etc. Then you might decide another 10% is to invest in a particular fund, then another 10% for another fund. It's up to you which way you split it. 
as long as it's in 10% increments. And this one works really well for lazier budgeters, and I'm a lazier budgeter and everything else. And it works well because it means you don't need to sit down and track all your expenses and decide which bucket it falls into. You just spend your 60% until it's gone. Now, with cost of living rising, we realize that sometimes these budgets are just not practical for some people. And this is where we reiterate that these set budgets do add structure for those who need it, but ultimately it should be something that is personal to you and based on your circumstances. Yeah, that's right. And if you can save $20 a week, that's still a surplus. You can work around your budget to save $40 instead. That's a 50% increase in what you're saving. We also want to acknowledge that these budgets are obviously catered towards people that have extremely predictable cash flows. And that's some self-employed people, but mostly that's salaried employees. It doesn't mean that budgets are not applicable to you. Just means that you need a more personalized method of budgeting and saving, but the same principles apply. The process of budgeting adds transparency, which is always a good thing. Self-employed also means that there's no one covering you for paid holidays or sick leave or personal leave. It means that this also has to be accounted for alongside an emergency fund and has to be budgeted for over time, depending on what's coming up. This could be an annual process, a biannual process. It completely depends on your lifestyle. All right, Mark. So now that that's all mapped out, the next step is understanding what is left after your expenses go out and how that can determine how you invest. Yeah. And not many people, of course, are lucky enough to just invest large lump sums. So not everyone can wake up and have $2 million and decide that you need to allocate it somewhere. So the large majority of us invest paycheck to paycheck. And that's definitely true for me. The amount that you have and the frequency that you get paid can have a pretty big impact in terms of the investment products that can suit your circumstances. All right. So let's start with your coffee example, Shani. So we get paid bi-monthly, and that means that you'd be saving around $125 per pay cycle, which of course is what I then need to spend. So <laughs> what could you do with this $125 I transferred to you? Yeah, I think that's a good question because $125 doesn't really leave you much space to make brokerage make sense. I've got a few options in terms of investment products, but we've got to remember that investing is just one part of the equation. We've also got to ensure that we're not just investing in one stock and that's it in terms of diversifying. So one of the options is a brokerage fee free ETF. If you're comfortable with the custodial model, I know that brokers like Superhero offer free brokerage for ETFs. So do companies like Perla with a restriction on issuers. If you've decided on a Vanguard ETF, there's Vanguard Personal Investor, which has a $200 minimum investment. So if I can reach for that or invest monthly, there's a lot of options that you're able to find depending on the securities that you want to access. And there's also some platforms that have $125 as the minimum additional investment. Now that you've mentioned that Perpetual offers this for an unlisted option, I think the main consideration is ensuring that you're not paying brokerage. You could also save to make parcels, and this is a very popular option for investors that are comfortable with direct equities or prefer to use a broker with a small brokerage fee. So a common amount is about $1,000, and these parcel amounts depend, of course, on how much you're paying for brokerage. I probably want something a little more than $1,000 if you're investing through a broker like Comsec where they're charging you between 10 and $20 for smaller balances. And the trick here is just to convert it to a percentage because I think that's what people intuitively can understand when they're thinking about investments. If you're investing $1,000, you're already 1% behind. If you're charged $10, 2% behind. If you're charged $20, that's a pretty big step back when the market hasn't even moved. 
And for those that want to move out of this $125 example and want to just look at this situation in general, we'll put a link to Shawnee's Selecting Investments Guide, which goes through this in depth and speaks a little more about what suits paycheck-to-paycheck investing and what might suit larger sums. The very high-level summary is that you want to avoid transaction costs as much as possible because it might be more detrimental to trade often than to just stay out of the market for a little bit and save enough of a parcel. You can avoid transaction costs by going to an unlisted product or you can find a low or no-cost broker. And equities, ETFs, and LICs will all have standard brokerage and buy-sell spreads as well. And we know that can be detrimental to total return outcomes. But of course, get the foundations right first. Find a surplus and finesse that surplus because it can often mean a meaningful difference to your portfolio balance. Every extra dollar that you can save is another dollar that you're able to earn a return on. And every return that you earn on that dollar can compound alongside that dollar. Yeah, exactly. And that will all make a difference over the long term. The other thing you can do to save more money is you can win a free hat. If you were in the market for a hat, you can win a free hat from Morningstar if you enter our competition. Plus Mm -hmm. that little bonus prize if you follow us on Instagram and send your comment through Instagram. So how about that? If you want to spend a little money, I'll tell you where you can meet me. You can buy a coffee. I'll give it to Shani (laughs) and take credit for it, but but it'll help me out. But anyway, thank you guys. And you, and you. (laughs) But anyway, thank you guys very much for listening. We hope you're having a great day. Any advice in this podcast is general advice or regulated financial advice under New Zealand law prepared by Morningstar Australasia Proprietary Limited and or Morningstar Research Limited without reference to your financial objectives, situations or needs. You should consider the advice in light of these matters and any relevant product disclosure statement before making any decision to invest. To obtain advice for your own situation, contact a financial advisor.